0: Welcome, everyone, to the MBIT Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Madan, and today we have a very special guest, Kevin Zhang, who is a partner over at Bain Capital Ventures to discuss his journey as a venture capitalist and the industry as a whole. First off, quick to slammer, the podcast is not financial or investment advice, and thank you, Kevin, for taking the time to join us today. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. First question is, how did you get interested in venture capital and the industry? Um, you know, I think I'd always been
1: fascinated growing up with entrepreneurship, the idea of, you know, coming up with some product or service that, you know, customers want, make their lives better. And um, I always thought about I want to sort of get into it is that world. It wasn't really a world that I knew super well. I didn't know anyone um, who was an entrepreneur growing up, unless you count you know high school students who sold you know cut code knives door to door, which wasn't quite the kind of entrepreneurship that I was trying to learn about. And and so you know when I got to college, I was trying to figure out how do I learn more about this. I you know started a you know little admissions consulting business to to learn what it's like to work with customers. I I up falling into an internship in Silicon Valley at a fintech company. And, you know, eventually I realized that kind of the most exciting entrepreneurship was happening in the technology world, that the world of kind of startups and, you know, it was sort of where a lot of dynamism was occurring and disruption to existing providers was happening. And so I originally thought I wanted to focus my contributions in kind of starting companies, being an early team member or being a founder. About five, six years ago, I had an opportunity to join Bank Capital Ventures pretty early on. And originally I, you know, I thought about it initially as kind of amateur capital as a good way to get a broad perspective on the market, build my network and relationships to you know serve more founders and learn from them. See more spaces, you know. I had only worked really in fintech before, and I wanted to learn more about software as a service um, and, and other um, sectors. And I, and I think what's kept me here, you know, six years, which is longer than I intended, of course, is, is that I've really come to to love uh, this opportunity to sort of get to know folks every day and to sort of get to you know help potential meet opportunity. But in some ways, I think it was not kind of it always went to the broader space. I don't know that. I never at some point thought I just wanted to be a venture capitalist. I feel like that would have been a little bit too specific.
0: Yeah, I agree. Especially with me here, I do the podcast. And one of the many things I found super fascinating about it is just to get to know a lot of really cool and interesting people. But you talked a lot about entrepreneurship when you were talking about how you got into venture capital. What made you choose venture capital over becoming an entrepreneur? You know, it's such a tough choice.
1: I, I think in many ways... I felt very conflicted about it for a long time. I think that I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I chose one or the other. I think that, you know, um, circumstances and learnings I've had over the years have made me probably more experienced uh, in and around. I think what you might want to have in a venture capitalist, I think even in undergrad, you know, I didn't I mean, I started this admissions consulting business, but I, I spent a lot of time running the Entrepreneurship Society um, at my university. We, you know, before I got paid to do it, you know, we were trying to help founders get connected with resources, you know, customers, talent, you know, we tried to, and, and funding, um, you know, we tried to help students get connected with just the early stage opportunities. Um, and in some ways like that work um, is the same work that I do today. And so I think there's sort of a through line in all my experiences um, where, you know, I've been involved in helping ship products and offer new services, but I've even more so been involved with supporting ambitious, high potential people um, and achieving their entrepreneurial ambitions. And I think they are equally meaningful to me, just in very different ways. And it's been how my life has turned out. Um, but I don't think I. Came to it really like initially I I wanted to be, you know, on the sidelines, you know, supporting and coaching versus on the field as a player.
0: Gotcha. And as a VC at Bain Capital Ventures, what's your day to day look like as a venture capitalist? I
1: think that the fundamental unit of our work is relationships. And so most of our days are dominated by meetings during working hours. We are meeting founders we already work with. Founders that are raising money, prospective founders who might start companies and want advice on the ideas they're considering. We're meeting emerging and experienced talent that wants to join high growth kind of young companies. We are meeting other investors to share perspectives or, you know, help bridge introductions. We're meeting customers, CTOs, CIOs, anybody who's buying technology for their organizations and getting perspectives on what their company priorities are and what they're looking for. So I I think um, the fundamental unit of our work during the day is just lots and lots of meetings and and sort of getting to know people and keeping in touch with people. And then I think a lot of the rest of the time, you know, you're you're sort of responding to inbound requests and those might be um, figuring out, you know, which meetings we think will be productive to take. Uh, It might be supporting your portfolio companies on ad hoc project. Maybe they're looking to canvas a certain group of, potential customers and we can figure out where we can help them open a door again introduction uh, maybe they're thinking through their financial model and how much they you know can burn this year to, um, and to what growth they should expect we can help them think through that they may have some more tactical questions about sales or marketing and we're usually a good first line of defense and then can route them to you know an expert you know for a deeper conversation that that's sort of like that kind of you know reactive to amount of requests and proactive to what you know, programs and initiatives we think will be valuable kind of that dominates for sort of the rest of the day and it's a pretty nonstop job I think most investors I know are trying to you know operate at a at the level of the founders that they work with that are kind of trying to build one of their own companies I think a lot of those investors you know dominates a good portion of their lives
0: and when you're meeting with these founders. What are some of the characteristics or traits that you look for to determine whether this founding team has a good chance of becoming successful?
1: I think that, you know, there's no one right answer on this stuff. And I think what's amazing about the ecosystem is there's so many, there's a diversity of points of view and backgrounds and what investors look for. I think a few of the things that stand out to me, maybe three things, you know, one is what people call kind of founder market fit you know so what kind of company and what kind of customer is the you know founder going after do they have the right mix of personality, experience, track record, expertise to go and address that problem. Like, why Why them, basically? And, you know, are they the perfect people to go solve this problem or not? And I think that a lot of that you can tease out from understanding kind of how they think about the problem and what problem specifically and, and how they thought about the right solution and what they discarded as not the right solution to the problem. I think a second thing that matters often is, you know, their track record. I'm conscious that, you know, when we... We meet someone. We're meeting them for you know thirty minutes or an hour. We don't spend an, in we don't spend sort of years getting to know. Some, many cases we do in fact get to know people over years before we invest, but but we don't we we don't know them as well as probably their coworkers do or their prior employers or maybe whether they went to school college or not. You know, I, I, but, I, but I think understanding their trajectory to date is a good is usually a way a stronger indicator of their future work than. Kind of just any thirty-minute window we have, and so I, you know, have a tendency to look for folks who were clearly standouts where they were before, had a clear record of you know creating new things, and, and having that sort of creativity and leadership that probably you would look for in a successful founder. And the third and last thing is, I, I do think it helps to. Ha- it probably helps to have, uh, and I'm not being non-judgmental about this. You know, a kind of preternatural determination. You know, a bit of maybe you're not totally motivated by uh, kind of ideal. You're sort of motivated by you know, maybe a chip on your shoulder, or you have some like very personal reason why you want to succeed. I mean, I think the truth is, building these companies is extraordinarily hard. It was hard last couple of years. I think it's going to be based on everything we're seeing in the markets today, potentially, you know, an order of magnitude harder in the next two to five years. I think working in technology startups has been kind of a trendy. Uh, um, the last five years is not how I thought about it when I first got into it. And I think we will go back to a period where it's not trendy. And it, I think it is truly very difficult. There's a lot of sacrifices involved. And so I think only a certain kind of person wants to have that and wants to seize the moment and has that sense of kind of willing to run through walls, willing to, you know, I think Elon Musk would say sort of chew glass and stare into the abyss um, and, and willing to sort of seize the moment and act with urgency uh, whenever there is an opportunity. Uh, so those three things are probably you know thinking about kind of founder market fit, uh, you know, kind of a track record of of, of the qualities we care about and, and natural determination and urgency. I think those are probably the the package of things that seems most valuable to me.
0: Yeah. And as you mentioned, you were talking about the VC industry as a whole. So let's uh, transition there a little bit. So let's go all the way back to the beginning of the VC industry. And there's a story that Queen Isabella of Spain was the first true VC where she backed an entrepreneur, which was Christopher Columbus with capital in exchange for a portion of the profits that were expected to be earned from the voyage. How has venture capital evolved as an industry since then? Well, I think that there's been a lot of
1: innovations in the legal structures of these things, and then sort of the nature of the expeditions being funded, and on what basis, you know, I think if we look at sort of both sides of that transaction, and also the past historical context, I mean, um, it used to be that you did need to be. Kind of a sovereign state. You know, the monarch is sovereign. Uh, You need to have the resources of uh, of a nation in order to, or or close to it, in order to make these kinds of investments. They were because both because you know capital accumulation was was limited to an even more narrow group than today, and partly because. These things were so extraordinarily expensive um, that they were only available to even a narrow segment of that group. And I think the venture world looks very different today, probably not as different as people would like, but more different, certainly, than in that era. I think you have, you know, folks who are professional um, investors uh, versus sort of integrated with some other role, you know, merchant banking or, you know, running a kingdom as its sort of chief administrator. Um, so, you know, you have sort of professional teams with, you know, sector specific expertise, you know, it's, I question, you know, whether Queen Isabella was advised by someone who studied extensively kind of, you know, meteorology and oceanography and geography and, and kind of understood sort of the economics of the expedition today, like presumably Mr. Columbus would have been, you know, um advised by and pitching to people with sort of deeper specific expertise. I think on the, expeditionary side, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, you obviously have the emergence of the corporation, limited liability, um, the notion of kind of minority and majority shareholder ownership and rights. A lot of Silicon Valley, you know, I think it sort of operates with this stuff in the background. You know, the truth is like we operate in a very high trust, very transparent way. You know, there's not a lot of, for better or for worse, there's not a lot of auditing you know, background checking being done today, people aren't looking, you know, there's not, especially for early jobs, not a lot of stuff to audit. And, and, you know, you've seen an increase in the incidence of fraud as a result, but, but I think that, you know, we've made so much innovation around, you know, the legal structures that protect both um, founders and investors that become invisible. Um, And then of course, I think that like, um, kind of the nature of what's being funded is different. You know, it's, you, you can set out now to build a software company and you can build a useful software for under three to $5 million of you know, institutional capital, perhaps way less than that, uh, if you really wanted to, versus I don't know what the inflation adjusted amount of the cost <laughs> to sort of uh, find the new world, but that was a very different order of magnitude. Uh, I think that that's made entrepreneurship even highly scalable entrepreneurship available to a much broader group of people. I think there's more diversity in the kinds of people who can get access to capital, uh, but more importantly, can get access to the skills and knowledge and tools uh, to build companies.
0: I agree. And also one of the things that's changed since then is you need more than just capital as a VC to be investing in companies. For example, we see this with founders fund. They're not just providing the capital, but they're allowing the entrepreneurs to just run the business as they see fit. They'll give some advice here and there, but they'll let the entrepreneurs uh, run the business. So what do you over at Bain Capital Ventures provide to the founder that's more than the capital?
1: Yeah. Well, I question whether. Not helping is a form of helping, Um, but (laughs) uh, I think it is a really smart approach. I think there, I think it also, I think for for someone like Founders Fund, I think it'll enable, it forces them to hold a different bar. You know, they, they don't tell themselves a story about how they'll guide the founder a certain way. They, they tell themselves that the founder is either sufficient enough to find their own way or they're not. And that's sort of probably a useful filter of nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I think the pendulum is, this, I think there's two topics in your question, in my opinion. I think one is, you know, this balance between founder friendliness and and kind of guidance and, and you know, sort of investor kind of preference. Um, you see that discussion, I think, more in the public markets. I like think private markets over the last you know 10 years have become extremely founder friendly. You know, there's very, very little in the way of, you know, investor rights or governance anymore. And I think that's probably as it should be. I think the truth is, if it's a, Early stage company, twenty five employees. You know, and you, the investor and the founders disagreement. There's, there's no way the founder. It's very, very unlikely the founder was better running the company than the, than the founder is. I, I think that, um, I think it's probably as it should be. And now maybe it'll swing back a little bit. I think there's probably, I, 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 I I'm not an absolutist. Like I think that there are probably cases where the board should defer, uh, and investors should defer and let the founders run the company. But there are also cases where the founders probably in uh, this environment are done a disservice by not, you know, having um, more social approval around hearing and taking to account the perspectives of, you know, their investors and, and partners in the business. But I, I, in the second point you're asking is, you know how do we help founders, and and how do we? You know what can we do as investors? want to be successful beyond the dollars? Most founders we work with, as you probably know, they they could get access to capital. They could, you know, they, they we're not the only people who would be willing to fund the business. So why are they choosing to work with us? And I, and I think that um, modern multi-stage lead check firms, let's say they tend that you know through bigger funds that tend to write the checks that kind of be the primary partner for the company at any given capital raise series, A, C, et cetera. Um, I, I think have developed kind of a baseline table stakes set of services to have in-house recruiting, to have in-house marketing, to have in-house customer development, C-level executive network resources. I think that's all become kind of table stakes. I think founders expect it of funds, funds expect they'll need to provide this. Um, and then I think from there, the, you know, what, because differentiated is usually just sort of people of backgrounds, particularly people who've had long operating careers, have unique track records. You know, I I don't have the longest um, track record in, you know, building companies, but I have spent several years in, um, you know, FinTech, online lending, small business venture services. You know, one of my partners was the CEO of a publicly traded security software company. You know, partners who've sold infrastructure businesses or software as service or, you know, commerce and pricing, you know, optimization technology, you know, these are all kind of specializations. They're not relevant in every case, um, but for certain companies and great founders, they make that investor the perfect person with the right context and relationships and knowledge. And so I think that is the other piece that founders tend to select on.
0: And according to the book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, VC-backed public companies make up nearly 76% of total market capitalization of public companies. How important is venture capital for a company's success?
1: You know, many of these kinds of companies have a business model or propose a business plan that requires upfront investment in or reach some scale that would be, make them a profitable business. Um, that's not uncommon, you know. Uh, That's how you know. It's true of mining companies, true of oil and gas companies. You got to drill until you can pump oil, and it becomes self sufficient. And in that sense, that you know, being able to raise capital to get through that initial investment period is essential. It couldn't exist without it, most likely. In many cases, not in all cases, but in many. On the other hand, is any particular investor differentiated or valuable? That is to say, if you assume a company would be able to raise money from anybody what is the incremental difference between the most valuable investment partner and the least valuable investment partner? How wide is that? Like what is the like increasing likelihood of success of the company? I think it's hard to know. I think that's probably less dramatic than, you know, whether capital is available at all. I think that there are ways that I've seen venture partners help make the company. I mean, um, if you think about Clubhouse, you know, as an example, now Clubhouse, you know, who knows, on an interesting trajectory as a company, but um, you know, this audio app, you know, where you could join rooms and hear other people speak in real time. You know, I think that Andreessen was able to bring a whole stable of their partners who have their own brands and audiences onto the platform. They I presume, you know, were involved in helping Clubhouse get kind of Elon Musk to interview um, Vlad Tenev from Robinhood, you know, when the whole GameStop Situation went down. I mean, I think that is massive you know, value add uh, to a business. I've seen um, some of our peer firms where um, they're extraordinarily good. At, they work. They know every you know CISO in America, every chief information security officer in America, and so they know what the key problems are. They can help recruit the right team and develop a product around it. They can help them find their first two or five customers. You know, that add up to a few million in revenue, and that's enough momentum generally to get them to, you know, kind of snowball from there. Like that's absolutely valuable. But I think, in, you know, so I think there are many cases where I do think it's possible to consider that the venture partner could help make or break a business. I think probably what's also true is the vast majority of cases that business is going to succeed on the founder and their team's determination. And the investors are probably somewhere in the magnitude of one to 5%, increased likelihood of success, rather than, you know, 20 or 50%.
0: And VC firms, unlike the traditional bell curve, they follow a power law curve where the distribution of returns is skewed towards a small percentage of venture capital firms where they have most of their returns. With so many new firms popping up nowadays, what are some of the things that VCs can do to get themselves on the side of that larger return? Um, It's
1: interesting. I think... I think that if you ask the question is how do you grow market share of the right hand of the distribution, right? Like how do you get market share of the most extraordinary companies? And I think um, it's a difficult question. I think if anyone knew for sure, they, you know, then uh, this wouldn't be a challenge. I think in fact, it's very hard to predict which companies become the right hand of that distribution. Um, My guess is a few things matter. I think the first thing is you've got to see all the companies. If you don't have an opportunity to invest, you don't know the company exists before, other people have invested already, and there's not an opportunity for you. Then obviously you won't be in the running. So I think you have to ask yourself: How am I going to see all the opportunities? Am I going to use data science and automation to identify people who are leaving companies, running businesses, or maybe people who whose last company got bought and they're going to leave? You know, after their earnout ends after two years, you know, do you have like a set of trusted relationships and the right networks where they're, those the founders you work with are they going to recommend other founders to you? The first thing you get to you get to see. Those opportunities, um, and then I think the other piece is that you probably just have to swing. Um, I think you have to be willing to take a big risk, and maybe several of them. And and kind of the nature of this is like most of them aren't going to work out. And as long as you're in the big one, it doesn't matter. I think uh, Mark Andreessen once said, "Like venture is a business where it's all sins of omission, uh, and not sins of commission." Uh, I think that's probably true. So I, I think answer is sort of. I think there's no way to do it reliably. I think you can probably maximize your odds by by seeing as many of these real estate companies as possible and having the opportunity to invest, and then probably taking swings on the stuff that taking more swings on the stuff that you're more that you feel like is above the bar
0: makes sense. And for the penultimate question here, the average series B round was up over 50% in 2021 compared to the year prior. Do you think we're in a bubble in venture capital, and if we are, what do you think we expect to see in the future?
1: Well, I don't know if we're in a bubble, but I think we know that we've been in an extraordinarily accommodative monetary environment. You know, the Federal Reserve yep. has kept rates extremely low for a long period of time. Um and um, in such an environment where the cost of capital is low, theoretically, valuations should go up. I think that you're seeing the in, the unwind of that right now, you know, as rates finally do rise. So I, I don't have a strong opinion on, you know, whether that means we're in a bubble or not. I mean, it, clearly, we, the historical standards, we have a period of unprecedented valuation multiples. That's coming back down to earth now. And um, it's probably healthy for the ecosystem.
0: Gotcha. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for beginning venture capitalists that are entering the industry? What are some of the most important things they should know?
1: I think that other young venture investors I mean, I mean, I think it's a few things. I think one is I think that you want to be deeply immersed in the ecosystems where your, you know, your your clients are, right? I mean, we 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 exist to serve founders and also our partners, of course, but um and, and I think that These days, it's not enough to just have a fund behind you. It's not enough to just have money. I think founders expect you to have expertise and networks and and be able to understand what they're talking about. And so I I do think you want to put in the work to get deep on a certain space, Um, maybe even experience it in some way yourself. Um, If you're, you know, if you're investing in commerce technology, you should open a Shopify store. I, I think that probably all helps. And from there, I think, you know, I, I, there's, there's, I think one thing is you want to get in the mindset and the ecosystems of the founders you want to work with. I think second is that it's important just to be patient. You know, I do think it takes a long time to, I remember when I was early on, I had lunch with another investor. And he said, you know, I, it was five years before I felt like I knew at all anything about what I was doing Um, in retrospect. And so I do think that, you know, venture t- has to attract a very ambitious, a group of folks as, as it should but i think most of us benefit from seeing more opportunities meeting more founders and companies learning more um getting more pattern matching before we rush into um, trying to make investment decisions
0: that makes a lot of sense all right everyone that wraps it up for today's episode thank you for tuning in to the mbit podcast if you enjoyed the episode make sure to drop a five-star review down below and thank you kevin for taking the time to come on the podcast today it was a pleasure
1: Thanks for having me. I'm not sure which five people had to cancel for you to get this far down your list, but I'm glad (laughs) you did.
0: Appreciate it.